let me start by asking you a question. I'd like you to remember the last time you visited an art museum. Did you ask yourself why certain artist work is displayed here? Whose art is included in the museum's exhibition? Whose art is excluded and why? How many women artists did you see displayed? How many artists belonging to minority groups? And why is there a discrepancy between white male artists and artists belonging to minority groups? Have you ever reflected critically upon the included artists as opposed to the art exhibited in museums? Hello everyone, my name is Annalise Hurellen and you're listening to a brand new episode of the Salon podcast series. Welcome and thank you very much for tuning in. Today we will be delving into a subject that has become an extremely, extremely important topic of discussion in the field of art history. We will be discussing the subject of decolonizing art history. Now, what does this mean? Since its formal materialization in the 18th century, the field of art history has remained extremely Eurocentric. Most of the art that is shown and taught in today's classrooms is created by white male European artists. The art historical canon, so the set of artworks that are considered to be the most important and influential throughout art history, are mostly produced by white male artists hereby excluding and neglecting the art that is made by artists who belong to minority groups. Today, more and more art historians question this very set of artworks and the use of the art historical canon in its entirety because it represents an incomplete, superficial, and incorrect image of art history. It presents a history that is written, told, and dominated by white men of privilege. Without critically approaching the current art historical canon, you'd think that virtually no women artists or artists belonging to minority groups have ever existed nor produced art that is worthy of discussion in a classroom. In other words, the art history that is taught at the introductory levels at top Canadian universities, so the courses that are offered to attract students into the field of art history, paint a highly incomplete and rather oversimplified picture of art history. The Eurocentric emphasis that continues to pervade and simplify the pedagogy of art history is inherently colonial as it continues to privilege the art that has been produced by white men over the art produced by minorities, hereby marginalizing them and silencing their voices. Decolonizing art history, therefore, in its broadest sense, means to rethink the field of art history. To question why we study the artist we study, and therefore to reflect upon and deconstruct the factors that have caused the silencing of artists who belong to minority groups. Because the subject of decolonizing art history involves many important aspects that I would like to discuss with you today, I've decided to split up this topic into two separate episodes. 
Part one will trace and explain the systemic factors that have caused the marginalization of Indigenous art history at Canadian university programs, specifically within the art history department. Here, I will assess some of the initiatives and efforts made by Canadian universities to add Indigenous art history to the quote-unquote mainstream art history that is taught today. I will look at course offerings and syllabi. Part two presents a case study of how both European and Canadian museums have dealt with their colonial past and have shown efforts to decolonize their institutions. We will be specifically looking at France's restitution project and Canada's National Gallery's most recent participation in decolonization. Let's begin. Firstly, I think it is really important to note that some of the following subjects may feel rather unfriendly and uncomfortable to some listeners. You may feel complicit or guilty, or you may feel as though this is not your battle to fight. But this is why the subject of decolonization in general, not just when it's applied to a pedagogy, is so very important to understand, unpack, and discuss. If you notice a feeling of guilt or complicity, please take a moment to pause and reflect upon where those feelings might be coming from. Think about how you can transform those into a productive exercise of self-reflection and self-positioning. When listening to these subjects, remain aware of the position that you hold. What are your privileges? I ask you to listen with an open mind. In 2012, scholars Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang published a co-written text titled Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. Throughout this text, Tuck and Yang unpack the intricate meanings and implications of decolonization and effectively argue that the term decolonization has become an empty label used to merely extend innocence to the settler and subdue their guilt. It has become a metaphor. Tuck and Yang trace the various forms in which these moves to settler innocence, as they call it, exist and ultimately perpetuate the Western and Eurocentric dominance in North American culture, society, politics, and art. By settler moves of innocence, Tuck and Yang refer to and identify several ways in which people who are not directly impacted by the systemic remnants of colonization alleviate the responsibility and complicity they themselves carry without giving up land, power, or privilege, without having to change much at all. I'd very much like to discuss with you some of these loopholes or settler moves of innocence as identified by Tuck and Yang because I think it's really important to recognize those in order to understand the causes behind the marginalization of Indigenous art at Canadian institutions. So one of the methods of evasion, a method adopted to avoid delving into and deconstructing the systemic nature of settler colonialism, can be defined by the term settler adoption fantasies. Now, what does this mean exactly? 
Well, settler adoption fantasies refer to the adoption of indigenous practices and knowledge but more to refer to those narratives in the settler colonial imagination in which the indigenous peoples hand over their land, their claim to their land, their very indigenous identity to the settler for safekeeping and preservation. This is, of course, an incorrect, oversimplified, and rather romanticized view on the history of settler colonialism in North America. These false narratives cause the perpetuation of the idea that settler colonialism occurred in a peaceful, consensual manner, hereby alleviating the settlers' guilt regarding their settler colonialism's cruel, violent, and brutal history. The perpetuation of historical myths such as those is used by critical settlers who feel guilty about settler colonialism. It is used as a way for them to miraculously absolve themselves from thinking about or facing their inheritance of settler violence. Another crucial and important moves to innocence I would like to discuss with you today is performative activism performed by the settler. Performative activism consists of an outward and superficial display of alliance, understanding, and solidarity with indigenous people, without having to make internal, personal, nor systemic efforts to deconstruct the systemic racism that continues to oppress indigenous peoples on their very own land. And here, the term tokenism plays a highly important role. Tokenism means to include indigenous peoples into the conversation of equity for the sake of giving a settler a pat on the back for including the voices of minority groups. Through such tokenistic gestures, the very act of just including indigenous peoples into the survey, statistics, or discussion is considered to be enough. Sandra Mohanty's work on transnational feminism and third world feminism, for example, argues that the visibility is enough rhetoric, in fact, only works to assimilate and generalize. It is harmful. Indigenous peoples are heard but never listened to in the practice of tokenism. And as we will discuss in part two of the episode, the practice of tokenism also exists in the pedagogy of art history. Indigenous art histories, more often than not, are included on a course syllabus as a mere chapter and never carry a whole subject on its own. Tokenism leads to the harmful generalization of the unique Indigenous histories, practices, and traditions. Tokenism is a practice of hearing without listening and it requires very little critical thinking, research, and does not ask one to move beyond their comfort zone, and is therefore highly performative and ineffective to arrive at real systemic change. So now that we've discussed a few examples of the ongoing systemic issues regarding decolonization, I'd like to reflect upon some of the more productive steps and efforts that are essential to the work towards decolonization. 
Here, a decolonizing education poses as one of the many effective strategies. And to start, I think it's important to develop a basic understanding of how the histories of settler colonialism have produced and still continue to produce legal, economic, political, and social barriers for indigenous peoples in North America. And here, the acceptance of incommensurability is really important. It means to accept and understand our uncommonalities first in order to build political alliances. Now let's talk a little bit more about this term, incommensurability. Editor, writer, and curator Aruna de Souza clarifies this term through an example of the tensions that arose between second wave white feminism and indigenous activism in the 1970s and 80s. Here, indigenous women and activists could not find footing within North American second wave feminisms. This is because Amer North American second wave feminism proved inadequate on the account of indigenous women's lived reality. For example, the re-establishment of pre-colonial gender norms and relations demanded by indigenous activists had never been a concern nor a project of justice for mainstream white second wave feminism. Instead of challenging the heteropatriarchy, indigenous women's activism in the 1970s and 80s centered around rebalancing indigenous gender norms. The heteropatriarchy equals a, con a construct forced upon indigenous culture by settler colonialism and is not a structure that had always been inherently present within their society. And furthermore, indigenous activism sought pan-indigenous sovereignty to achieve autonomy outside of and apart from the nation state, which is a goal that was not shared by white mainstream feminism in North America. And so, Based upon this example, the term incommensurability means to undergo a successful and effective process of decolonization. We first must acknowledge that not every justice project is applicable nor desirable by everyone to the same extent. In the co-written text by Indigenous women Eve Tuck, May Arvin, and Angie Morrill, for example, it becomes clear that today's field of gender and women's studies, too often the consideration of Indigenous peoples remains rooted in and discussed as a historical phenomenon, a way from which our contemporary society has progressed. The same text offers another critical approach to feminist studies in which settler colonialism is centered and exposes its structures still well and alive today and its effects it has on indigenous peoples today. Only if we understand our uncommonalities, we can proceed to effectively challenge and reconstruct North America's settler colonial society and culture through a process of decolonization that goes beyond mere metaphorization. Again, I like to refer to Mahanti's work. She argues that it is not about recognizing a shared identity or struggle, but about recognizing common oppressors 
and how the common context of struggle is important in forming political alliances that are long-lasting and effective. As Joanne Barker effectively summarizes, quote, native sovereignty struggles are gendered. Native rights to sovereignty are not defined or exercised outside of historical context of patriarchal colonialism. And the structures and impact of patriarchal colonialism are neither post nor neo. We live in them still, end quote. Now that we've addressed a few of the many systemic remnants of settler colonialism in North America today, let's apply these critical lenses to the art historical pedagogies used in Canadian universities. Initially, I aimed to conduct a review of Canada's top six universities as ranked by Maclean's annual survey. University of Toronto, McGill, University of British Columbia, Waterloo University, McMaster University, and Queen's University. I wanted to look at the core syllabi of the introductory art history courses offered at these universities to conclude whether my experience in the lack of education around Indigenous art history was unique to my university or shared by other universities in Canada, which have been ranked as the allegedly highest quality. I quickly find out, however, that the lack of Indigenous art history offered at these six universities was a recurrent trend. And so, as a result, I think it would be, instead of highlighting the lack of Indigenous art history, I think it would be much more interesting to look at Canadian universities that do offer substantial Indigenous art history courses and briefly discuss the type of courses they offer. Before I dive into a few exemplary efforts made by Canadian universities to improve art history's pedagogy, I'd like to draw your attention to an extremely fascinating and important text called Decolonizing Art History. And this is a co-written text by Catherine Grant and Dorothy Price, published just last year in the year 2020. I'd like to discuss this text with you first as it offers suggestions as to how educational institutions such as museums and universities ought to participate in decolonization of art history. So this text is extremely interesting. It is formatted as a survey in which Grant and Price address a recurrent set of questions and they address it to art history professors, students, and teaching assistants from all around the globe. So in these questions, Grant and Price asked what a decolonized art history might look like, how it can be achieved, and how the museum sector can participate in decolonization. And so I think it's important to note the context in which this text in the survey was written, um, as it was prompted by last year's worldwide demand for the removal of public statues of historic figures responsible for colonial legacies. And Price and Grant saw this worldwide outcry as a sign of a radical reevaluation of educational programs. Whose history 
Whose culture, whose art do we study in the contemporary curriculum? Who is left out and why? In other words, Price and Grant apply the goals of decolonization directly to the field of art history, which is extremely relevant in our discussion here today. They highlight the gaps in not only art history's pedagogy, but also in the institutional powers of art museums and propose many productive changes that can help the contemporary Eurocentric field of art history transform into transnational pedagogy. So what kind of suggestions arise in Grant and Price's survey on the reimagining of the teachings in art history? While a recurrent proposal in this survey demands a greater emphasis on history within art history, not just as a contextualization of the artworks, but as an integral part of the subject. They call for a meaningful, profound, and extensive understanding of the historical context of an artwork to ask yourself what social, cultural, and political circumstances have shaped and influenced this work. And here I'd like to quickly suggest Walter Mignolo's fascinating article called Coloniality is Far From Over and So Must Be Decoloniality as a way to complement Price and Grant's emphasis on the importance of history in decolonization. And as Mignolo stresses in his text, decolonization means to de-link ourselves from coloniality modernity and to reconnect with memories, legacies of the past. In other words, the importance of understanding history cannot be underestimated when studying art history. Additionally, several professors surveyed in Grant and Price's text here stress the importance of teaching students how images have the power to construct and influence ideas of nationality and race, for better or for worse. When asked about the cultural sector, sector and the role of museums specifically, many demand the erasure of hierarchical distinctions between fine art, decorative, and ethnographic museums. This is because these, such, these sorts of labels enforce prejudicial assumptions on the quality or importance of the art in question. Finally, Grant and Price's survey underlines the power curators hold. The art selected by a curator to be on display in museums shapes the public perception of art, the exposure, to much greater extents even than peer-reviewed academic articles can. Another fascinating survey titled A Questionnaire on Decolonization, published in the fall of 2020, assumes a similar format as the text by Price and Grant. Here, educators are asked what decolonization might look like in a general classroom setting. And here, a recurrent emphasis lies within the encouragement of students to become even more critical and aware of the text and knowledge that they are taught, that they are exposed to, to learn how to detect the colonial Western perspective that has infiltrated many of the histories still taught today, and to challenge those by learning about histories that have been marginalized, to recognize the gaps in knowledge, and to recognize the violence inherently present in the erasure of Indigenous histories within today's curriculum. 
Here, studying the work of indigenous scholars such as Mishwana Human, Jennifer Denatel, Sarah Deer, Jolene Rickard, for example, can spurn the broadening of the curriculum for the better. To understand how, for example, the structural violence of settler colonialism continues to shape indigenous women's lives today, and how colonial logics of gender have eroded indigenous sovereignty and self-determination. Let's take a look now at two exemplary Canadian universities that offer art history courses in which Indigenous art constitutes the sole subject of the course, in which the critical examination of transnational theories is taught and decolonization is treated as a vital and necessary part of the curriculum. Carleton University, located in Canada's capital of Ottawa, offers a significant variety of courses that each center around contemporary as well as pre-colonial Indigenous art history at all undergraduate levels. Such courses include Inuit art, transnational theory, topics in contemporary Indigenous art, and arts of the First Peoples, which is split into two separate courses. So you have one that examines the art of indigenous peoples in Canada's woodlands, the plains, and the subarctic, and the other one examines indigenous art from Canada's southwest, the west coast, and the arctic. So it becomes clear that Carleton's art history department does not participate in the generalization of indigenous art history. It doesn't relegate indigenous history and art history as a mere chapter on a syllabus. Instead, they offer courses that respect and reflect the unique variety of indigeneity in Canada. Now, how in-depth are these courses exactly? How is indigenous art history taught? What kind of topics are studied? I've had the wonderful opportunity to study a syllabus of Carleton's Arts of the First Peoples course and review the topics discussed in class. When looking at this syllabus, what stood out to me is that this course offers students the opportunity to learn about the wide variety of media still used in Indigenous art. Painting, drawing, film, photography, performance art, and sculpture. Every medium is discussed at length. The readings assigned for this course are exclusively written by Indigenous scholars and artists who each offer their unique expertise. And so here, it is clear that the courses offered at Carleton University delve into an extremely meaningful study of Indigenous art history, hereby challenging the Eurocentric, colonial, quote-unquote, mainstream art historical canon. I think it's also very important for me here to note that all students in Carleton's art history program must take at least one of these courses that I have listed above in order to complete their art history degree. Carleton's art history students will therefore graduate with a valuable and in-depth exposure to indigenous art history, a vital component of art history that in fact isn't offered at Canada's top six universities. 
Apart from offering a wide variety of in-depth Indigenous art history courses, Carleton University actively participates in an international effort to initiate discussions about transnationalism and the global within the local, focusing on indigeneity. In 2019, Carleton University became a part of a significant international network of six universities, two Canadian and four European institutions participated. This international network is called TRACE, which stands for Transnational and Transcultural Art and Cultural Exchange. This three-day conference included discussions between artists, curators, and educators who focus on, quote, how art and its related discourses can foster more resilient public cultures and institutions that challenges the urgency to rewrite histories beyond linear narratives of Western domination, end quote. This network, Trace, aims to use art to challenge the way people think and talk about globalism. Carleton University's partnership with these universities, its membership of the TRACE network, therefore demonstrates exemplary efforts to reimagine the educational role of universities in reshaping the art historical canon. How a university can arrive at a transnational pedagogy and a transnational global perception of art. I would also like to draw your attention to Trent's University's significant efforts that allow students to learn about Indigenous art history in a meaningful way. Located in Peterborough, on the land of the Mississauga Anishinaabe, Trent has incorporated traditional teachings and perspectives into its curricular and extracurricular programming, culminating in the Cheney Wenjack School for Indigenous Studies. Since 1969, Trent's groundbreaking leadership in Indigenous Studies became the first university in Canada and only the second one in North America to establish an academic department dedicated to the study of Indigenous peoples and Indigenous knowledges. Trent School for Indigenous Studies offers an extreme wide variety of courses. Indigenous language courses, Indigenous music and visual arts courses, traditional teachings by elders as well, both in an academic and an experiential way, which makes Trent's program immensely unique in Canada. Here, Indigenous art is a vital part of every course offered at the School of Indigenous Studies at Trent University. And so, Upon examining both Carleton and Trent University, I hope that I've given you a better sense of how Canadian institutions in fact can and have successfully challenged the Eurocentric Western pedagogy often employed at Canadian universities. The case studies on Trent and Carleton University have demonstrated that academic institutions do in fact have the capacity, the means, and the resources to offer a pedagogy that is transnational, global, and actively working towards decolonization. But can museums achieve this as well?
We have come to the end of part one of the episode on decolonizing art history. Thank you very much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to tune in for part two. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.